0: So how does the cinnamon, or is it brown sugar, or is it cinnamon you said that you're having in the curried
1: pumpkin? Um, oh, well, it's, uh, cloves and brown sugar, and curry But then it's also, like, spice. Jamaican curry
0: spice, so that's, that's mm-hmm. like, spice, is that, like, actually spicy, or is it closer
1: to, like, a, is it closer to, like, a jerk? I, I've never had Jamaican curry spice, so. Um, it's not spicy at all, basically. Like, a warming spice, but not, like, actually hot the curry spice because it has both turmeric and coriander in it is pretty pretty bitter so the brown sugar kind of just evens that out so it's got a little bit of sweetness but it's not uh super sweet sweet dish and it's definitely got lots of lots of flavor from all the different spices all right and how close are you to so, finish
0: uh, finishing this entire jack o lantern that you've been eating your way through this, this is, is it. it when you finish this meal you're going to mm-hmm. be done eating a pumpkin I ate the whole pumpkin. <laughs> it feels like there's a rite of passage for some sort of, like, pumpkin cannibal tribe.
1: You have to eat. Honestly, I feel pretty I feel pretty accomplished as a cook, because I just bought the whole pumpkin, and I made, like, four or five different dishes. Well, I wouldn't count the pumpkin water. I mean... <laughs> uh, yeah. Neither would I. <laughs> It wasn't bad, though. That's the weird thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the one I was most questionable about.
1: Mm. I'm going to put that away so I can crack my beer open. Oh, so uh, what are you drinking? Mm. Well, I'm drinking Harvest Pumpkin Ale from Nine Locks Brewery, which is here in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, which is right next to...
0: Halifax. Well, funny you mention that. I'm currently drinking Paranormal Imperial Pumpkin Ale, which is uh, by Flying Monkeys, the local craft brewery here in Barrie. And I've had it before. It tastes like a pumpkin pie. And unlike most, like, pumpkin anything, really, it's actually made with real pumpkin as opposed to just pumpkin spice, which is, like, cinnamon and cloves and all delicious stuff, Mm. but not actual pumpkin.
1: Uh I hate when people try to pass off pumpkin spice, which is just like pie spices. So this has actually got pumpkin in it, and I've had it before, and it tastes
0: like pumpkin pie.
1: Uh, Let me see. The ingredients. Oh, ingredients. Water, hops, malts, yeast, natural flavors, and spices, and love. Oh, that's good. Oh, how sweet. Um, I've never tried this beer before. Oh, well. Give me a quick review. I will. Okay. Taste? Yeah. Okay. So. Oh, that's interesting. It's nowhere near as pumpkiny as the literal pumpkin I was just eating. <laughs> but it's pretty good, honestly. It's a... Uh, it just kind of How has it, is a nice... How strong is it? Oh, uh... It is mm. 5.2%. With an IBU of 12, so not very bitter at all. It's not, it's not oh, bitter. This is amazing, uh, and it's also dangerous. This one's 10%.
0: <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, it hits like a truck. I'm having a whole pint. Ah.
1: <sighs> this is Unreliable Sources, a Wikipedia show with Eric and Derek where Eric and I discuss the funniest, weirdest, and most interesting Wikipedia articles we can find, hopefully for your education and enjoyment. Warning. Information shared may be unreliable after filtering through our brains. Side effects of listening to unreliable sources may
0: include, but are not limited to, fearing William Shatner, flying moon on swans, and Nazi werewolves, a robot boning, and having to pee really bad. So happy late that Halloween, everybody. By the time this uh, uploads, it'll be after Halloween. Yeah. Um, But it's before Halloween when we record it, so that's the excuse we... I have for this being a, a bit of a Halloween episode. Halloween's in a week, a week from today. Yes, actually. Uh, so, before we get into anything else, I just want to do a little bookkeeping note uh, because I asserted last episode that the patriarch of the House of Wessex was named Cerdic, and while that is true, there are uh, some people who say that the name was supposed to be pronounced Cerdic or Kurdic. So, it's hard to tell oh. with these ancient names where there's no one alive who, you know knew the person or knew anyone who knew the person or knew anyone who knew anyone who knew the person etc so I figured I'd be
1: upfront about that lest woden smite me <laughs> fair enough you know on a similar note I really enjoy the difference in pronunciation between ancient Latin and modern Latin because uh, you get you know how Julius Caesar... Vini vidi vici or vini weedy wiki yeah, exactly. That's what oh, I was going to be Oh, Derek,
0: you can't pull the wool over my eyes.
1: <laughs> oh, I figured you knew it already, but you know, not everybody. Uh, does. For those who uh,
0: were wondering, that's the very famous line, which translates to. I came, I saw, I conquered. I'd say it again, so that it'll. Right? Yes, that that is. No, say it. Say it again, but say it better with more confidence.
1: I came, I saw, I exactly. conquered. Exactly, and I love that line. Um, so do you want to go first today, or should I go first? Ooh, that's a good question, good question. Who went first last time? Uh, you did with the beer flood. Oh yeah, it was very topical, because I spilled beer on myself. Um, you know what, why don't you go first? Um, given that it's a Halloween
0: episode, I started with werewolves, because they're my favorite gothic horror monster. Vampires can suck it. Team Jacob for life. <laughs> So, some quick etymology. Werewolf My comes part. from. Yes, I love etymology. And so, werewolf uh, comes from the Old English words were, meaning man, and wolf, meaning, well, wolf. Uh, so, it literally means man wolf, which is pretty apt. But before werewolf, though, or the word werewolf anyway, there was the Greek lycanthrope, which comes from the Greek words lykos, meaning wolf. And Anthropos, meaning a man. So, man-wolf or wolf-man. Pick your poison.
1: <laughs>
0: wolf-man. And then, unsurprisingly, the werewolf uh, is a quite common European folkloric figure and has many variants on how or why they transform and such, uh, and this continued to evolve as time has gone on. So we're going get, to be getting a bit of a history of the werewolf here. Um, And Wikipedia notes that belief in the werewolf uh, developed in parallel to the belief in witches, and has its own less famous set of werewolf trials similar to the witchcraft trials that led to the unfortunate execution of poor Anna Goldie back in Episode 2. And ironically, Mm. the werewolf trials also originated in Switzerland, where Anna was killed. Them Swedes are apparently very superstitious. So getting into the history of the werewolf, It is believed that the European monster has its roots in the Proto-Indo-European people, where transformation into a wolf may have been an aspect of initiation into the warrior class. Probably not literally, though. Although, you can never be certain. (laughs) Uh, For those unaware, by the way, the short of it is that the Proto-Indo-Europeans were the group of people who are the ancestors of at least most of the languages of Europe and India, if not the very people themselves. And they lived about six thousand years ago, which is why it gets hard to do it. It's basically all genetics and linguistics, and it, yeah, it's very likely they were real, but we don't have no, we have no actual evidence. At totally least that fair, I'm aware yeah. of. There are some references to men changing into wolves that can be found in ancient Greek myths, as could be expected, given they have a word for wolf man, including one <laughs> of King Lycaon, whose name <laughs> sounds suspiciously similar to lycanthrope. Surely that's just a coincidence... No, he feeds a child to Zeus, and as punishment, he's turned into a wolf. <laughs> that's permanent, though. Okay. Which isn't the classic idea we have nowadays of someone who can shift back and forth. Uh, that won't be the last time that there are ideas that are dissimilar to the bottom werewolf, though. I will get to that. So there are a few more Greek legends, mostly about tasting human flesh and being turned into a wolfish punishment. But if you abstain from tasting human flesh as a wolf for nine years you're changed back. Uh, The best Greek werewolf, however, that I was able to find on Wikipedia, and I'm going to quote this to you. Mm -hmm. Quote, In Prose, the Satyricon, written circa 60 AD, by Gaius Petronius Arbiter, one of the characters, Nicaros, tells a story at a banquet about a friend who turned into a wolf. He describes the incident as follows. When I look for my buddy, I see he's stripped and piled his clothes by the roadside. He pees in a circle around his clothes, and then, just like that, turns into a wolf. End quote. (gasps) What? That's that's my favorite
1: werewolf so far. (laughs) Okay, that that might be the best werewolf lore I've ever heard of. He he takes his clothes off, pees in a circle around them, and that's what turns him (laughs) into a wolf. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) All right. When you so moving into in the medieval period,
0: uh, werewolf was werewolves were still taken quite seriously, and they were mentioned in some law codes, such as that of King Canute of England. And we've firmly placed ourselves into the era of European Christianity now. So the werewolves are no longer created as punishment from the gods, but are vile transformations by magic rites granted to men by the devil. The exception to this is in Scandinavia where the pagan Norse gods held on for much longer than other uh, pagan religions did, and where werewolves prominently featured in many sagas, such as that of the Volsungs. The Scandinavian werewolf is a transformation caused by donning the hide of a wolf and channeling its spirit to become the beast, and it's closely associated to Odin. So now I'm wondering if Queen Elizabeth can also grant this power. (laughs) But I digress. It's also from the Scandinavian werewolf... That we have the split in European werewolves along the east and west side of Europe. And interestingly, the eastern werewolf is often associated with the vampire, being an undead body that turns into a blood-drinking wolf at night, and then returns to its human corpse form
1: in the morning. That's interesting. Very different from what we... Yeah. Imagine. Usually
0: werewolves and, and vampires are kind of traditionally associated as being enemies, but here we go. So now we're getting into the early modern era, where the werewolf trials get big, usually as a way to explain accusations of murder and cannibalism, even when the case had no previous association to wolves. Uh, one possible driving factor for the werewolf legend is believed to be the simple fact that werewolves, and thus wolves are the most feared predator in Europe, so these tales are bound to appear. For instance, in areas with no wolves, similar legends exist, such as the were hyena of Africa, the were Tiger of India, or the were Puma mm. and were Jaguar of South America.
1: Wow. Um, were hyenas
0: in particular sound horrifying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the only picture of hyenas that comes to my mind is from the Lion King. So I'm just picturing humans that turn into those, those fuckers.
0: You know what? That's a bit more comical than what I had to say.
1: Uh, so here comes the part
0: of the article about real-life lycanthropy. Well, okay. theories at least. So, porphyria, a liver disease, can explain symptoms of photosensitivity, red teeth, and psychosis that could have led to accusations though arguments against this come from the fact that mythological werewolves almost always resembled true wolves and gave no indication of their wolfish nature in human form.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So these kind of looks when you're a human wouldn't necessarily be what people were looking for. Hypertrichosis or the excessive growth of body hair is another culprit though it's believed one again that the the transformation was Total. You are either fully human or fully wolf, so the really hairy human isn't doesn't really fit with uh, traditional legends. And the condition is also very rare, and it's thought to be far too rare to explain how prominent the werewolf legend is. Mm. Uh, rabies is another disease that gets tossed around due to the symptoms of the disease being very similar to the legend, but the connection of passing it on via bite is a red herring because of the that part of the werewolf legend is a relatively recent belief again, oh. I'll get to recent werewolves in a second.
1: Wow, I was thinking you were going to bring up rabies, but I wasn't expecting that the biting was part of a recent edition of the of the lore, or well, at least
0: transmitting it via bite is I'll get to that though fair enough, yeah so now here comes the part that everyone's been waiting for how to become a werewolf because I don't know about you but. Every single time I start a new game of Skyrim, becoming a werewolf is the first thing I do.
1: <laughs> gotta ra- got race straight to Whiterun. Oh, absolutely. You gotta become a werewolf. It's so much fun. Join the companions. Use spells instead of uh, melee weapons. Be the only companion to do so. Become a werewolf.
0: Yeah, sounds like a plan. All right. So, the simplest way to become a werewolf is to get the aforementioned wolf pelts, or if you can't get a whole pelt, a belt of wolf skin should do the trick. Okay. Now, if you can't get those, or Odin or Queen Elizabeth won't give your pelt their blessing, you can try rubbing a magic salve all over you. Uh, Drinking rainwater out of the footprint of a wolf also works, but if you don't feel like drinking from a muddy paw print then you can try the Swedish way and drink a specially prepared beer while, uh, while reciting the magic words. Do you have the magic words? Um, no. Wikipedia is smart and is not distributing the magic werewolf words. Fuck. Now, if you're too lazy to drink anything, you could always try the Italian, French, and German way of sleeping outside on a certain Wednesday or Friday in the summer with a full moon shining upon your face okay As a note, the next Wednesday and Friday in the summer with a full moon is July 23rd 2021 for Friday and July 13th 2022
1: for a Wednesday. All right I will now, uh, start making plans.
0: Now if you don't want to wait that long or you're afraid uh, that those aren't the certain, wednesday or friday so i don't know what that means if it's just anyone with the full moon or if it only special ones even if it has the full moon i couldn't you know easily google whether it was the special wednesday (laughs) but if you don't want to risk that you can always try upsetting a god or a saint or even getting excommunicated by the pope to be cursed with lycanthropy now if you're worried that the curse may be something less cool than becoming a werewolf you could try a pact with Satan. Or, if you don't want to be evil, you can actually become a hound of God. As one old man, claimed to be a, uh, claiming to be a werewolf, asserted <laughs> that he and his kind were blessed by God and descend into hell to do battle with witches and demons every night to keep them from stealing grain from local farmers. Why isn't this a movie yet?
1: That sounds awesome. Let me just take note. Uh, next <laughs> film I will make Hounds of God. I mean,
0: maybe change the motivation from just keeping them from stealing grain to something a bit more suitably cool, like souls. But that's like a bang-up movie idea. I unfortunately, totally the unfortunately the authorities of the uh, of the time disagreed and sentenced him to ten lashes for the crime of idolatry and superstitious belief.
1: That's not that harsh. I was expecting much worse. Uh, It's probably because he was a funny old man.
0: Fair enough. So now, please notice that being bitten was not on that list. Again, it's a relatively recent idea in werewolf lore, so your results may vary. Don't go out and try to get yourself bitten by a werewolf. (laughs) But what if you've become a werewolf already and you've had buyer's remorse? How do you cure yourself? Well, Greeks and Romans believed that you could exhaust lycanthropy out of yourself through hard work. In medieval Europe, there's traditionally three methods. Medicinally, using wolf's bane. Surgically, or by exorcism. Now, the first of those two somewhat makes sense. But I want to know how you surgically remove a werewolf.
1: I'm thinking it's like plastic surgery. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, get some laser hair removal, first of all. Fix the face up, you know. Uh, plastic yep. surgery has come pretty far in, in modern times.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And uh, uh, A you know, Sicilian belief... Is that the werewolf can be cured of its ailment by striking it in the forehead with a scalp or scalp with a knife, or piercing the werewolf's hands with nails? Uh, But to me, this sounds like the cure is death. So if you're (laughs) worried of that, in Germany, you can cure a werewolf by addressing it thrice by its Christian name. And meanwhile, the Danes believe that merely scolding a werewolf would cure it. Hey, hey, you, werewolf.
1: Stop eating my kids. Oh, shucks. You know that makes me think of? It makes me think of, um... Swiper the, uh, swipe the Fox? Swiper <laughs> the Fox. Swiper, no swiping. Swiper, no swiping. Swiper, no swiping.
0: Oh, oh man. man.
1: <laughs> Alright,
0: so now we're coming finally to the aspects of werewolf lore that have only been added on in modern times.
1: Okay.
0: This is going to be a lot of classic stuff, that you're going to be surprised how recent it is. Weakness to silver weapons stems from the 19th century. Okay, The first werewolf as an anthropomorphic human-wolf hybrid comes from the movie Werewolf of London from 1935. Um, The trend of werewolves as more tragic or heroic uh, also is a recent invention. Hashtag Team Jacob. (sighs) Immunity to weapons that aren't silver, so not just a weakness to silver weapons, but total immunity to non-silvered weapons originates in the 1941 film The Wolfman. And as previously stated, the werewolf's bite is a modern uh, idea with no notated origin point, but uh, it is notated as having been a relatively recent idea of turning with the wolf bite. The idea that the werewolf's human form is affected by their condition is also a recent one, with stuff like being extra hairy or having some of your wolfy superpowers, but to a lesser extent, or having wolf-like urges in the human form being common ones. And finally, this one's going to surprise you, because this is the big daddy of them all. Yeah. Transformation on the night of the full moon, while present in some aspects of werewolf lore earlier, only became an integral part of werewolvery recently, with the first cinematic full moon transformation occurring in 1943's Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Okay. 1943. That's less than 80 years ago. That's how... That's like the most integral werewolf thing, is they turn out under the full moon. It's less than a century old.
1: It's less than 80 years old. I don't know what to say. My
0: grandmother is older than werewolves turning at the full moon.
1: <laughs> I, I, I'm a little speechless, honestly. I, I, I don't know what to say. That's like the werewolf thing. That is the werewolf thing. And it was only exactly. It only came up in 1943? Yep. And uh, here's the
0: best part. That's not even the most surprising part about the werewolf page on Wikipedia, because the last section caught me completely out of left field, and it was called "Nazi Germany." <laughs> so to read the whole section, quote. Nazi Germany used Werwolf, as the mythological creature's name is spelled in German, uh, that's W-E-R-W-O-L-F, it's basically Verwolf. the same thing, but Nazi Germany used Werwolf, as the mythological creature's name is spelled in German, in 1942-43 as the code name for one of Hitler's headquarters. In the war's final days, the Nazi Operation Wehrwolf, aimed at creating a commando force that would operate behind enemy lines as the Allies advanced through Germany itself. Two fictional depictions of Operation Werewolf, the U.S. Uh, television series True Blood and the 2012 novel Wolf Hunter by J.L. Bennett, mixed the two meanings of werewolf by depicting the 1945 diehard Nazi commandos
1: as being actual werewolves, end quote. I've heard a lot of... um Far out there, like you know, even within the Marvel comic universe, and a little bit within the cinematic universe, within with the Nazis like using alien technology and hydro weapons, that kind of stuff. Yeah, all of that kind of stuff. But werewolves? Now that's Nazi werewolves. That's a new that's one. That's not where I... I
0: thought this episode would be taking me when I decided to learn about werewolves. <laughs>
1: Nazi werewolves. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Nazi werewolves. Nazi so, werewolves. From werewolf, I decided to jump to the case of Peter Stump, one of the most famous werewolf trials in history. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, he died on October thirty first, fifteen eighty nine, on Halloween. Okay, now how that's perfect is that? I mean, I mean, it sucks for him because he probably wasn't a werewolf, but from the sounds of it, he still wasn't a great guy. So like, I'm not going to be as sympathetic as I was with Anna Goldie. So. Also known as the Werewolf of Bedburg, Peter Stump was a German serial killer accused of werewolvery, which is a real word, witchcraft, <laughs> and cannibalism. Okay. The most comprehensive source of his story comes from a pamphlet published in London in 1590, of which only two copies still exist, and it's a translation from an original German source that did not survive to the present day. It describes Stump's life, the crimes he allegedly committed, and includes statements from neighbors and witnesses to those crimes. The exact date and place of Peter Stump's birth is unknown, though it's likely that he was born near Bedburg around 1545 to 1550. He spelled his name various ways throughout his life, and for a time adopted the alias Abel Griswold, and it's thought that the surname Stump may have originated as a reference to the fact that his left hand had been cut off, leaving only a stump, and this is important because supposedly his werewolf form was also miff- missing its left forepaw, which helped prove his guilt. <laughs> so he was a rich farmer okay, and a widower and had two children, a girl of roughly 15 and a son of unknown age. So 1589 rolls around and his trial becomes one of the most famous werewolf trials in history. After being stretched out on a rack, because of course torture was involved, he confessed to practicing black magic since his childhood. And as a part of this confession, he claimed that the devil gave him a magic girdle, which enabled him to turn into, quote, the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire, a mouth great and wide, with most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body and mighty paws, end quote. And removing the belt would turn him back to his normal form. After his arrest, the belt was surprisingly never found. (laughs) He also confessed to spending 25 years attacking livestock as well as men, women, and children. Including, and this quote gets a bit graphic, so people who are squeamish, you've been warned. Quote, Fourteen children and two pregnant women, whose fetuses he ripped from their wombs and ate their hearts panting, hot and raw, which he later described as dainty morsels. One of the 14 children was his own son, whose brain he was reported to have devoured. End quote. That is dark, wow. Yeah, dark stuff. And to top it all off, he was also accused of having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, who was sentenced to die with him because that's fair. Yeah, it's uh, medieval, or not even medieval, we're getting into the Enlightenment at that point, but uh, yeah, that's... uh, That's fair. Apparently he also fucked a succubus sent to him by the devil. Wow. So, he got around. That is, uh... (sighs) That is an awful man right there. Another warning for incoming graphic descriptions, because I'm going to read Wikipedia's entire section on his execution verbatim. Quote, The execution of Stump on the 31st of October... 1589, alongside his daughter Sybil and mistress Catherine, is one of the most brutal on record. He was put on a wheel where flesh was torn from his body in ten places with red-hot pincers, followed by his arms and legs being broken with the blunt side of an axe head to prevent him from returning from the grave before he was beheaded and his body burned on a pyre. His daughter and mistress had already been flayed and strangled and were burned along with Stump's body. As a warning against similar behavior, local authorities erected a pole with the torture wheel and the figure of a wolf on it, and at the very top they placed Peter Stump's severed head. End quote. Wow. Apparently, Bedberg really did not
1: like werewolves. Or serial killers who kill... Fourteen children and two pregnant women. so,
0: Or cannibals. Or rapists. So, you know what? I can agree with the people of Bedburg here. I mean... <laughs> I mean, it was brutal, but I don't like those people either. So after that, there's a section on his appearances in popular culture, a few songs, a reference in a Scooby-Doo movie, and a few books and TV shows, and an appearance in a Doctor Who audio drama so absurd, I'm going to directly quote the synopsis Wikipedia gives to round this whole thing about him off. Quote, In the Doctor Who audio drama, Loops Garo, Peter Stubb was in fact a werewolf. He managed to escape before he was executed and lived for another five centuries. He was defeated by the Fifth Doctor in Brazil in 2080, It is implied that he ate both the Grand Duchess Anastasia and Lord Lucan, end quote. So, you know, the missing, uh, the missing Russian princess, he ate her (laughs) and Lord Lucan. I I did a quick look up. He's, he was like a Lord in England that got notoriety for being a mob boss and then also went missing before his trial was finished. Mm. So apparently Mm -hmm. he ate
1: him too. Seems he ate all the people who are mysteriously missing. Maybe he ate my dad when he went to go out c- getting cigarettes. That's not true. Your dad's not missing. Yes, my dad is lovely. <laughs> Your dad is not missing. Nor did he leave. Though he's he's a wonderful man. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's uh, just absurd. He lives for
0: 500 years, gets defeated by the doctor in Brazil in 2080, eats the princess
1: Anastasia. <laughs> Did you say, 2080? Yes. That's so he's still out there. At that's large. the future. Oh, it, I guess it's Doctor Who. That's that makes so much more sense. Oh yeah, because <laughs> him living for 500 years <laughs> makes perfect sense. But how could we know what happened in the future?
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that's where I ended my first dive because I was I'm aware that that was pretty long.
1: Yeah, for the first um, so what thing you I went into? on this week, I looked at the page for Cyrano de Bergerac. Okay. Now, Cyrano de Bergerac is or was a, a real French poet who lived from 1619 to 1655, but he's most famous for a play that was written about him by Edmund Rostand in 1898. That's play i watched that inspired me to look him up the first line on his wikipedia page describes him as a french novelist playwright epistolarian and duelist the interesting word there being epistolarian which i had to look up because i had no idea what that was and when i clicked on it it took me to the wikipedia page for letters with no explanation But then after further searching and a little bit of etymology on my side, I found out that it comes from the Greek word epistolo. That's probably not the right accent to use, but epistolo, which means to write letters and Arian being someone who does that, right? So epistolo, someone who writes letters. Isn't that interesting?
0: Yes, I was not aware of what it was either, and I was just assuming you'd either explain it, or it wasn't that important, and I could continue pretending like <laughs> I knew what it was.
1: Um, anyway, I don't want to get into the, the play, because this is actually Gritty. about the the man himself. Man? But I do have a little bit to say about the play. Um, it was very well researched, mostly true, even down to like the names of the people who were there at the battle that takes place in in the play but very interestingly the play introduced the word panache to the english language do you know the meaning oh, of that word i do but are you talking about a play that introduced a word to the english language yes put a pin in that people <laughs> okay panache literally means plume and they were the plumes that were worn on hats and helmets. And yeah. it, it's very famous from uh, King Henry IV of France, who led his army with the war cry, Ralliez vous à mon panache blanc, which means follow my white plume. And the meaning in English describes someone who has a flamboyant manner and reckless courage. So yeah. I just thought that was a little interesting. uh that it introduced this new word. Well, it was already a French word. A very but useful word. Yes. So for his actual life, there is so little that is known because it was just very vague. I mean, there's bits and pieces, but it's a lot of the boring stuff. Like, he moved from here to here and he lived in this city for a while and his father didn't like that he moved to the city and wouldn't give him money all the all the boring stuff but i i'm going to skip over some of that to get to some more interesting stuff especially because i actually went on a deep dive after this but i was very interested because he was a novelist and playwright and he wrote a series of novels the first of which being the comical history of the states and empires of the moon which was published uh, posthumously, and it was a satire. It was also considered to be one of the earliest works of science fiction, and I'm just going to read you the plot because I, I don't think I could do better than this. Hit me. The book is narrated in the first person by a character also named Cyrano. Cyrano attempts to reach the moon to prove that there is a civilization that sees the Earth as its own moon. He launches himself into the sky from Paris by strapping bottles of dew to his body, but lands back on Earth, believing he had... You know, I wait, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry.
0: Straps bottles of dew? Yeah,
1: like morning dew.
0: All, all I can imagine now is just a really bad 90s commercial for Mountain Dew.
1: <laughs> Continue. Okay, so he... he Straps bottles of dew, but lands back on Earth. Believing he had traveled straight up and down, he is confused by local soldiers who tell him he is not in France. They escort him to the provincial governor who informs him that it is, in fact, New France. Or North America at that time. This was the 17th century, after all. So, he didn't make it to the moon, but he did make it across the Atlantic Ocean? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, the narrator explains to the governor that all matter is formed inside and expelled from stars and that once the sun has run out of fuel it will consume the planets and restart the cycle pretty accurate I mean that's actually pretty close yeah, he uses New France as evidence for this theory claiming that it had only recently been discovered by European explorers because the sun had only recently sent it to earth The narrator tries again to reach the moon, this time with a flying machine that he launches off the edge of a cliff. Though the craft crashes, local soldiers attach rockets to it, hoping that it will fly to celebrate the feast day of St. John the Baptist.
0: Presumably also using a Mountain Dew as fuel.
1: (laughs) No, uh, these were firecrackers. But uh, being dismayed at this use of his machine, the narrator attempts to dismantle it while the fuse is lit. But the machine takes off and sends him flying into space. He meets the moon's inhabitants, who have four legs, musical voices, and fantastical weapons that cook game for a meal as it's shot. That sounds useful. Which means there's also game living on the moon. <laughs> yes, moon deer, which, moon deer. You sh- which the moon men shoot with their magic weapons <laughs> that cook them immediately. Moon rifles. As long as it's medium rare. He also meets the ghost of Socrates, who lives on the moon, of course, of course. and Domingo Gonzalez of Francis Godwin's The Man in the Moon. You're fucking kidding. His discussions with Gonzalez include how God is useless as a concept, that humans cannot achieve immortality, and that they do not have souls. After these discussions, the narrator returns to Earth. That's it. Okay. So it's a... It's a novel about a man who (laughs) invents rocket-powered space travel and then meets the ghost of Socrates and discusses how God isn't real. So. God isn't real. Okay. okay, um, That's wonderful. Um, Also. also, That's one hell of a Mountain Dew commercial. I just want to point out that the second novel... (laughs) Is The States and Empires of the Sun follow-up, of course. And there's no Wikipedia page for it, and I couldn't find anything else out about it. But I can only presume, because the first one's called The States and Empires of the Moon, that the second one involves him going to the sun. Don't worry, he travels at nighttime, so he doesn't burn to death. Good, good, good. Of course. Um, from there, this led me to the Man in the Moon because it was v- mentioned in the plot summary, which was a novel written by Bishop by English Bishop Francis Godwin in the 1620s and published posthumously after his death around uh, 1638. And I don't want to take up all the time, so here is my most important takes from the plot. My own plot summary. Please do. Domingo Gonzalez is a Spaniard who must flee the New World after killing a man in a duel. He decides to return to Spain, but along with the way he discovers giant swans. The swans are very strong, so Gonzales invents a device that allows him to harness many of the swans to fly around. Later he runs into some hostile natives while exploring, and in an attempt to escape he flies really high. Higher and higher for twelve days until they reach the moon. After six months living on the moon, with the moon people, who are just like normal people, Gonzales is worried about his birds. So he goes home, but lands in China, where he is arrested as a magician. Because he literally flew down from space on swans.
0: Wait, 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 was he worried about his swans when you say birds, or does he have, like, birds at
1: home? No, no. He was worried about the swans. He, didn't, he was worried that living on the moon wasn't very good for them. Well, that's, you know... Himself, though, he could live on the moon just fine. That is very honorable of him. He hasn't known these swans for very long. Um, so he's arrested as a magician, but he uh, learns Chinese and impresses the people who have locked him up, so they let him go. And the story ends when he meets uh, Jesuit missionaries who send his story back to Spain. Okay, that's it. I can't
0: believe that's how the first man uh, manned landing on the moon went.
1: I know. I, I was surprised too. I was like, "Wow, who knew? Swans and all. But you've heard it here first. That's how it went. Very Halloweeny. Very Halloweeny. I saved my Halloween topic for a second. Well.
0: My second topic, quite predictably, is another Eric, because we're going to have one every episode. But because I wanted to keep the Halloween theme of our late Halloween episode, I found the Halloweeniest Eric I could. (laughs) Okay. So, this isn't strictly Halloween-y, but I did my best. Eric the Robot was built in 1928 by World War I veteran Captain William Richards, and an aircraft engineer named Alan Reifel, and he was the first ever British robot. So I hope robots are Halloween-y enough for you, because we're going to get into his story. He was constructed to open the exhibition of the Society of Model Engineers at London's Royal Horoculture Hall. The reason he was built was because King George VI, who was then only the Duke of York, cancelled on them, and Richards, Who was the exhibition's secretary Offered to make a man out of tin To take the future king's place So during the opening Eric stood up Bowed to the gathering And delivered a four minute long opening address (laughs) Eric took two men to operate And his voice was delivered by a radio signal So it wasn't like someone recording it And then it being radioed Like they programmed his voice okay, And it was converted into radio and sent to him and then he spoke it. Uh, At least, that's how I understand it to have worked. Uh, Despite being able to sit and stand, Eric couldn't move his legs in a way as to allow him to walk. You can decide whether that's about me or the robot. (laughs) 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 And his chest was emblazoned with the letters R-U-R as a reference to a robot manufacturing company from a play called R-U-R. After his appearance in London, Eric went on a tour across the U.S., and in New York introduced himself as, quote, Eric the Robot, the man with no soul, and I feel like that's a direct attack on me. The New York press, however, described him as the perfect man, which I think is more understandable. (laughs) And sometime after his U.S. tour, Eric just vanished. Nobody knows what happened to him. (laughs) I like to believe he's living his best life out in that secret island that has Freddie Mercury, Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson you know, all of them on it yeah Yeah, I, I prefer to believe that's where Eric is but the world may never know <sighs> however, in 2016 the London Science Museum succeeded on a Kickstarter to have Eric rebuilt working from archived material and he's now a part of their permanent collection Eric 2.0 that's, that's sweet the page goes on to talk about another robot build by Richards in the 1930s, and yes, that's as specific as we get, not a date, just the 1930s, and his name was George. George toured the world and could deliver speeches in many different languages, not only English. And while Eric cost £140 to build, George cost £2,000, getting a rough estimate for inflation and using 1935 for George because that's the middle of the 30s, that puts Eric as costing 8,853 British pounds today, or $15,159.47 Canadian, and $11,543.72 American cents. You know, that was actually a lot less than I was expecting. George cost, uh, in today's money, either 143000 175 pounds and 27 pence or 245,166 dollars and 75 Canadian cents. So George was significantly more expensive than Eric. Oh my, that that was a lot more the second one. I also feel compelled to mention the fact that uh, one of the people that I play D&D with, Boyle, plays a warforged character. And Warforged are the closest that you can get to playing a robot in uh, official D&D material, and his character is also named George. Looking at the picture they gave of George, that's the only headcanon I'm ever going to have. He looks wonderful. I'll send you a picture later. Please do. I want to see it. So I'm quite fond of the aesthetic of having robots with normal names instead of like just mashing a keypad and then adding some hyphens and numbers and calling it a day. George, Eric, is much better than xwc 3495 8469420 I just like it. I, I like the aesthetic better. So after I was done learning about Eric and George, I decided that I was rather tempted to follow up on King George the Sixth. but I know that that rabbit hole would take me on another deep dive into the English royal family, and not only was my last trip a bit long on werewolves, but... We don't want to have Queen Elizabeth's family dominate the podcast two episodes in a row. So <laughs> instead I checked out that play, R-U-R, that Eric's chest was a reference to.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: was written by a Czech playwright named Karl Kapek in 1920. So R-U-R stands for Rosamovi Universamani Roboti or in English, Rossum's Universal Robots. It premiered in January 25th 1921 and it actually introduced the word robot to the english language so we're coming back to plays introducing words to the english language <laughs> and it also introduced robot to just science fiction as a whole which originally i was just planning on giving a summary of the play and i'm already learning more than i expected to this is why i love wikipedia so R.U.R. R. was a really influential play, and by 1923, it had already been translated into 30 languages. And I am going to give a plot synopsis real quick, but before I do, it's important to note that these robots are made of synthetically uh, created organic material, not machinery. So they're actual people-y looking creations. Uh, so, the synopsis.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of gross. Like flesh golems. Yes. Uh, Uh. That's
0: got more in in common with Frankenstein than with George. So, the plot synopsis. It's a three-act play with an epilogue. Mm -hmm. Act 1. The year is 2000, and Helena travels to the island where Rossum's Universal Robots factory is located. She gets given a quick history lesson about the factory, which was founded in 1920 after a man discovered how to make synthetic life and decided to try and prove that God doesn't exist. His nephew, however thought making tons of money was a better idea, and thus the factory was born. Flash forward to the present, and it turns out Helena is a member of the League of Humanity and wants to give the robots rights. The factory manager convinces her that that's dumb, (laughs) and they get engaged. Wikipedia does elaborate that he forces her into it, though, so... Yeah. That's weird. Uh... Act 2. Ten years later. They go over the past ten years of history and mention that human births are on a decline. Meanwhile, the worldwide economy is based on robot labor. Helena is shown two new robot models, a man and a woman. The woman is literally named Robot Helena, which is weird. And, ro- uh, and the real Helena burns the formula to make them, and we hear a word about a robot uprising that has begun on the mainland. Act 3. The characters lament the end of humanity while defending their role in causing it. One of the factory higher-ups is killed trying to make peace, and then the robots storm the place and kill all the humans except the chief engineer because, quote, he works with his hands, like the
1: robots.
0: (laughs) Epilogue. Years have passed, and almost all humans are dead. The engineers, trying to reverse-engineer the formula Helena destroyed at the request of the new robot government so they can make more robots. I assume they can't reproduce on their own? Mm. Uh... It, wikipedia didn't mention it <laughs> but the engineer is a mechanical engineer and doesn't know how biology works so he's having a hard time of it oh, no. the robots offered to let him kill and dissect some of them if that <laughs> will help but he's not into that but he gets an idea though and decides to go along with the killing and dissecting and decides that he's going to dissect one of the two new robot models from act two and then the other Each time, the other one begs him to take them instead. The engineer determines that the new models have fallen in love, something the robots were previously unable to do because the older models had been very much devoid of having an id, ego, or super ego. Calling them the new Adam and Eve, the engineer is happy giving the world to them,
1: which I think is implying that these two new ones are capable of boning. So I know I said already that my next film idea... It's going to be, um... Uh, The Hounds of God. Oh, yes. Uh, Yes, my next film idea, Hounds of God. But, like, we need to... I need to be involved in reviving this play. Has it been revived? Do we know that? Uh, it's actually... It has a lot of references
0: in modern culture because it's very significant. So... I'll get to its modern uh, references and such, but first I want to just make sure that you do know the play does explain how the robots are made, and I think it's suitably gory for a Halloween episode, so I'm going to quote it directly, Okay. and I'm going to warn people this is a little bit gruesome. Quote, there are descriptions of kneading troughs for robot skin, great vats for liver and brains, and a factory for producing bones, nerve fibers, Sorry, arteries, and intestines... But, uh... It's a boning factory? Fuck off. (laughs) Okay. Nerve fibers, arteries, and intestines are spun on factory bobbins, while the robots themselves are assembled like automobiles. So they never have a child growing up phase, they are built. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's how his robots were built. And it wouldn't be an episode of our podcast if we didn't talk about etymology. We already did. Which we've already done, but (laughs) here's some more. (laughs) Okay. So, like I said, the word robot was originated in the English language by this play and replaced words like automaton or android that were more common beforehand. And it comes from the Czech word robota, which means forced labor and is derived from rab, which means slave. Wow,
1: that's good etymology right there. That is, that hits the spot. Uh, Yeah, good.
0: Yep. (laughs)
1: And it was well-received in its time for its
0: originality and had several adaptations, including in 1938 being the first ever piece of science fiction to broadcast over television. Mmm, really? And, uh, among the other ones, the most interesting one I found was in 2015, the play was performed by an all-robot cast made entirely out of Legos. Really?
1: Yes. That is awesome.
0: That is awesome. Oh my gosh. And it's also been referenced in stuff like Futurama throughout the year. So it's a relatively well-known play. That's awesome. Oh my god. Yeah. So that's where I ended my uh, second deep dive, having been very satisfied with finding
1: out the origin of the word robot, and just that play in general. You know what? That was an amazing, you know, bringing the whole thing around, word discovery to another word discovery, but... Yeah, so that's uh. that's where I ended my second dive. I only did four pages total and I
0: think I got a very good bang for my buck out of that. Yeah. So seriously. you now have your Halloween
1: topic, right? I do. I have a I've saved Halloween the last topic. like
0: I've saved like the last ounce of my beer to listen to this, so I'm going to shot it down now and then
1: you can finish it. So for my topic, ah. I wanted to get Really Halloween-themed.
0: Okay, how Halloween-themed?
1: As much so as I could. So I'm going to be talking about Halloween. The holiday, or...? Not the not the holiday, not the holiday, but the 1978 film by John Carpenter. Okay, yeah, I've never seen it. So today is October 24th, and... Tomorrow is October 25th, which happens to be the anniversary of when this film came out. When did the film release? October 25th, 1978. 1978. So that put it at 42 years old tomorrow. Awesome. I hope my quick
0: math is right, otherwise that's embarrassing.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm not going to double check. I have drank an entire pint
0: of 10% beer, so that's my excuse. (laughs)
1: Um, It's a very famous film, and it was directed and scored by one of my favorite directors John Carpenter and it's got a very famous score have you do you know it
0: nothing I know virtually nothing about it I know the main antagonist is
1: named Michael Myers but he's not Shrek (laughs) no yes you're right the antagonist is Michael Myers and I I'll get to that but before I do so this movie was Jamie Lee Curtis's acting debut which is pretty significant because she has become very well known for her horror movie work. I probably don't know her because I don't really watch horror movies, but what was her name again? Jamie Lee Curtis. Okay, let's see if I know anything that she's from.
0: Oh, I definitely you recognize might. her.
1: Yeah, you, you probably do. She's, she's a big name, and this was her acting debut. Like, good for her.
0: Oh, she's in Freaky Friday! Yes, there yeah, we go!
1: i know her yes. i know her
0: okay there we go jamie lee curtis go on
1: derek yeah so i'm not going to talk about the plot at all because i don't want to uh, leave any spoilers here so you can all watch halloween if you haven't already yes perhaps i'll watch it tomorrow you yes on the anniversary but the antagonist is michael myers and he was a deranged killer who killed his own sister on Halloween when he was six years old, Same. and who escapes the asylum to return home after fifteen years. Same. <laughs> um, was this just based on my life? This, this is also a major. This film is also a major source of the innocent, pure heroine say, survives while teens that sin and do drugs die trope. It basically invented that, which is Good. pretty common, and it's even referenced in the movie Scream.
0: Well, what horror movie isn't referenced in? If you yeah, a horror movie right. that doesn't get referenced in Scream 84,000, uh, then you know you haven't made it as a horror director if it's not referenced in a Scream
1: movie. <laughs> you're totally right. King Kong got referenced in a Scream movie. It's not even a horror movie. I love Scream as a movie. Just a side note here, but... I know I'm talking about one horror movie. I love Halloween. I was talking about the holiday when I was about to say that. I love Halloween. I love the holiday, too.
0: It might be my favorite holiday. Either that or Thanksgiving. I just love fall. I also do love Christmas, though.
1: Very excellent. We'll talk about that on the Christmas episode. (laughs) In the Christmas episode. Which we will hopefully try to release before Christmas. Before Christmas, as opposed to (laughs) after Christmas. Anyway, I just mentioned Halloween too, Which leads me to my next point that... This film spawned an entire franchise of 11 Mm -hmm. films, some novels, comic books, and a video game. And these 11 films, some of them were unrelated, some were sequels, and some were reboots. There was a famous 2007 reboot directed by Rob Zombie, who, they're a metal band. I don't know much about this. I'm going off the notes here. Rob what? Rob Zombie. Is that someone's name? I'm unsure. If Harris was here, I'd ask him. Uh, Explain real quick, who is Harris? My roommate. Alright, because not everyone might know that. I'm going to look it up while you're continuing to talk. The most recent film was 2018's reboot, almost reboot I guess, titled just Halloween, which serves as a direct sequel to the original and retcons films 2 to 10. Good, because I'm sure that those were bad. Well, I don't know if they were they were great, so perhaps. There is actually a follow-up to 2018's version, two follow-ups, coming out in 2021 and 2022. So we'll have to see how those go. I haven't actually seen the 2018 version, but I might watch it between now and Halloween. Well, good to know. And while I have your attention,
0: uh, I've looked up the Wikipedia page for Rob Zombie, so we're staying on brand here. Yeah. And Robert Barleth Cummings, uh, known professionally as Rob Zombie, is an American singer-songwriter-filmmaker. So, it is a person, not a band. It's, however, a stage name. Yes.
1: Unfortunately, Zombie isn't his actual legal name. That would be awesome if it was. So, this film, Halloween, that we're talking about, the original, 1978's version, was very successful. Relatively successful. It had a budget of only three hundred thousand dollars and it had a box office earnings of seventy million dollars which is not the highest box office earnings ever but considering the the budget that they started with that was a a massive return on investment over 20 times return yeah that's pretty good one of my favorite things about this whole thing is that the michael myers mask which has become an infamous halloween staple now uh, we're talking about the holiday at this point right yes the holiday it has become a staple of the holiday and you've probably seen it a white face orange hair yeah i recognize it kind of loose but the original mask that was actually used in the movie for the filming was a captain kirk mask that was purchased for $1.98 from a costumes shop and then painted <laughs> and modified. They cut the eyes a little bigger. And I think that's particularly interesting because Michael Myers is the likeness of William Shatner. Is that weird
0: or what? <laughs> 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 I, think, I think I was aware of that, but uh, yeah. That's, okay. that's pretty good knowledge to have.
1: Yeah, I think that's just <laughs> excellent. They, they did it as a cost-saving measure. Like, they bought Jamie Lee Curtis's whole wardrobe for $100 at JCPenney. Hey, that's just what my wardrobe costs.
0: <laughs> that's what my wardrobe costs, and I don't mean one
1: out- outfit. I mean my entire wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, a couple more interesting facts about this film yes please do because i'm staying away from the plot i just have the fun facts this one particularly i think you'll find interesting christopher lee i love him sir christopher lee go on was offered the role of the hero dr sam loomis but he turned it down and he later said oh he he just turned it down at the time oh but he's okay so we've got an explanation but he later said it was the biggest mistake of his career Oh, really? Yeah. And if you've seen the movie, it's a big role. It's like the the hero, the protagonist, and it was a good one. And I think it would have been awesome if Christopher Lee was playing that role. Fun fact, Christopher Lee has portrayed Dracula in more movies than any other actor. Really? That's awesome. <laughs> That's Halloween-themed, too. There we go. Vampires are Halloween-themed. Um, also, Carpenter created a fear meter. To help Jamie Lee Curtis know what level of terror to act at, because the scenes were filmed out of order, Jamie Lee Curtis often didn't know how much she was supposed to react in certain scenes, how scared she was supposed to be. So John Carpenter created a fear meter from 1 to 10 to instantly tell her how scared she needed to be, and she had different reactions and scream levels that would go along with each number. Anyway, that's all I have for this deep dive. I didn't go anywhere afterwards. I just stayed on the page, but... Fair enough. I am happy to present Halloween, the film. Anyway, that's a... You did, You did a pretty bang-up job of giving us the,
0: uh, the Halloween episode without actually mentioning anything to do with the plot.
1: Thank you. I... I very much am against spoilers, and I encourage everyone, once again, to watch this film because it is just, you know what, just excellent. Derek, in the vein of peanut butter on cheese,
0: I'm going to have watched the movie by the time this episode airs, and my thoughts on it are right here. All right, Derek, so I just finished watching Halloween uh, with my brother and his girlfriend, and, um, well, my first thought is that Kyle wouldn't shut up. So that was annoying. But overall, I think it was an alright movie. Um, It's definitely showing its age. And it was suspenseful. I still don't like horror movies. And there's a lot of stupid horror movie logic. Like the villain can move as fast as you want him to as long as he's not on screen. And when he's on screen, he only walks. And a girl goes into house alone. Like that kind of stuff. It was alright. Didn't love it. But it was alright. More titties than I thought. Uh, especially Jamie Lee Curtis not wearing a bra was not something I expected. Yeah. So, those are my thoughts on Halloween. So, that's what wow, I thought that about was the movie awesome. Halloween. Well, hey, you don't know that. I might have hated it. I don't know that. I was I'm going to watch was talking about your review. It was awesome. Oh, thank you. My review was clearly impeccable. And it's the yeah. review to yes. give of this movie. Um, yeah. I hope it's spoiler-free, though. Oh, fine. I'll give a spoiler-free review. (laughs) Jeez. Um, So that's the Halloween episode, folks. Uh, The last note that I have is uh, in font size 24 and bold letters. uh, And I'm going to quote this note. Don't forget to name the episode you idiots.
1: I was just about to say that. I I was about to say we can't forget to name this episode. (laughs) We... This is one of our running gags. We can't forget it. Again. Great minds think alike. So, my initial thought is just calling it the Halloween episode, but that's kind of boring. You know, I I was thinking that too, but I think that's falling too much into the the friends naming scheme after we said the, the one that we forgot. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. So... Here's my first one. Nazi werewolves.
0: Nazi werewolves is good, but I feel like it might be a bit spoilery. You
1: know what... I was thinking
0: Nazi werewolves would be really good for the side effects at the beginning of the episode, because it's, like, quick. Um, you're right. We could call it... I feel like we can figure a way to call it The Late something, because it's our late Halloween episode. But... Calling something the late, like, the late Christopher Lee means that he's dead, which is also kind of Halloween-y. Mm, mm, I feel mm, like there's mm. something there we can do.
1: Um, hmm, Um. Or we
0: could, wait, wait, wait. We could call it Plays That Invented
1: Words. That's a great one. Very good. It just loops back to, that was so funny that we both had Plays That Invented Words.
0: What are the odds of us both coming to this Halloween episode with like, all right, so I'm going to be talking about this play that introduced a word to the English language for the first time? (laughs) All right, so there we go. Episode four, plays that invented words. Excellent. Thanks for listening to Unreliable Sources. Derek and I hope you enjoyed it, and we would like to thank Wikipedia for everything we learned this episode. We are eternally grateful. Wikipedia is a non-profit website and relies primarily on donations from people like us to continue sharing its knowledge for free. If you can, consider throwing a small donation their way. And until next
1: time, never stop learning.